0: From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. There used to be more than 6 million small windmills dotting the American landscape in the days before the power grid reached almost every home. Now wind is back with massive turbines as a multinational
1: business. 2004, we did a little over $1 billion globally, and uh, we anticipate will uh, be close to $2 billion in 2006. You know, got a long ways to go, but it is growing.
0: Wind is free. It doesn't warm the planet or poison the air, and there's plenty of it. But the turbines aren't pretty, and they can be dangerous for bats and birds, even though engineers
2: say they're getting better. The machines are much more productive. You need fewer of them. They are more reliable, uh, and they're less intrusive on the landscape and obviously less of a threat to birds. The potential for wind
0: energy is tremendous, and so is its power to generate controversy. Catching the wind this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
3: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
0: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwin. The wind. You can't see it, but you certainly can feel it. From a soft caress on a summer night to a howling hurricane. It goes by many names. Mariah, the Santa Ana, the hawk. We speak of winds of change, whispered winds of truth, ill winds, and second winds.
4: Against the wind.
0: And winds that inspire music.
4: We were running against the wind. Everyone knows it's windy. Like a candle in the wind. Oh.
0: Untamed powerful winds can destroy. Harnessed, they can be put to work. Of the dual nature of wind, Henry David Thoreau wrote, Do not forget you are completely at the mercy of the wind, and a fickle power it is. Today, the fickle force of the wind can be seen in its power to generate both electricity and controversy. Advocates say modern wind turbines provide unlimited, pollution-free power. But critics complain the huge windmills scar the landscape and pose a menace to wildlife. Today, Catching the Wind. Living on Earth explores the advancements in the technology and the debate over wind power. Our story begins in the nation that leads the world in turning the wind into electric power, Germany. We get our first taste of German wind power on a hill high above the town of Pletwitz, just south of Berlin. On the remains of what was once the largest open-pit coal mine in Europe, 44 modern windmills now stand. Manager Henry Leuvenhardt takes us to the top, one of the giant machines, to show how wind power is transforming the German landscape. And you can notice from up here also the, the contrast between the, the destruction of the old energy production of the mines where the landscape was completely altered and changed to the new high-tech and alternative source of energy that the wind park provides, which is yet a cleaner and more environmentally friendly and safer. When it went online in 2001, Kletwitz was the biggest wind park in Europe. Some 10,000 windmills dotted the German countryside then. Today there are 16,000, and there are plans to double that number by the end of the decade, a goal most, but not all Germans, support. In Esch, near Cologne, citizens pack an auditorium to argue the merits of a plan to erect a wind turbine that would rise 643 feet over their village. Many say it's just too big, Others, like Max Baerkoltz, say it's just too expensive.
5: They're in this area, in the total year of 360 days, this windmill turns only 70 days. That's the capacity of the wind. So why you need for 70 days production uh, out of a year a big thing which cost us 8.5 million euros? You are lucky to have those things.
0: (laughs) The wind turbine plan for Esch was never built. A victory, perhaps, for a small but growing network of wind power opponents in Germany. At a cafe in Berlin, we met this movement's most vocal leader. My
5: name is Hans-Joachim Mengel. I am professor of political science at the Free University of Berlin and living in the region of the Uckermark.
0: Like many Germans, Herr Mengel favors alternative energy. He's a big advocate of solar, biomass and conservation as ways to reduce pollution and offset global warming. But he has a litany of reasons why he doesn't support wind power. In the first place, it's unreliable, he says, When there's no wind, you have no energy. And second, he believes government incentives and industry subsidies have led to runaway development of wind parks by investors just out to make a fast buck.
5: When I saw that the planning process, for example, to set up windmills has really been undercut by financial interests and, uh, in my view, by overwhelming financial interests and you took not any more in consideration the protection of the land escape then i started to think and afterwards to act hans mengel took
0: his anti windmill arguments to the people he ran for parliament and came in second in regional elections solely on a platform that claimed wind parks are destroying the cultural
5: heritage of europe And I'm not alone with this opinion. One of some foremost uh, playwrights in Europe and Germany, and philosopher Bote Strauss, he mentioned in a new book that by destroying these countrysides, these views, you are destroying the historic feeling of mankind, of European people. And this is a very sad thing.
0: Critics charge the proliferation of wind turbines is spoiling the German landscape, the idyllic countryside that inspired writers like Goethe and Schiller and composers from Bach to Beethoven. Germans even have a phrase for it, Verspargelung der Landschaft. Roughly translated, it's a complaint that so many wind turbines are sprouting up, the country is turning into an asparagus field proponents of wind energy are heeding the criticism. Recently, the German Wind Energy Association agreed to a set of standards for the industry to follow when deciding where to put wind parks. Helmut Ruscheisen is with the Nature Protection Society of Germany, an umbrella organization of environmental groups that helped draft the guidelines.
5: You know, Germany has a long experience in wind energy. We had made mistakes at the beginning, that means we have uh, chosen the wrong sites for windmills too near to cities or where people are living, or at the wrong places, so that windmills may disturb the landscape. Also, may be dangerous for for birds. And uh, therefore, having made these experiences, we we think we should have. If you want to spread the wind energy worldwide, and we want to do this, you need a clear standard so that you can develop this without uh, harm for environment or human beings.
0: To put the anti-wind protest in perspective, it's useful to note that, according to polls, two-thirds of all Germans support wind energy. Wind power supporters accuse the coal and nuclear lobbies of fueling the protests. And they dismiss critics as gross stathers, city slickers who don't want to see their views of their country weekend homes spoiled. With Germany committed to phasing out nuclear power and pledged under the Kyoto Accord to reduce greenhouse gases, the German Environment Minister, Jörgen Trittin, says plans to boost wind power will
1: move ahead. We launched an, a Renewable Energy Sources Act. It was a decision by Cabinet, and it was unanimous uh, decision. Uh, and uh, this has the target uh, to raise the share of electricity in the year 2020
0: up to uh, 20%. That's quite a goal considering Germany now produces just 6% of its energy from wind and by some accounts is running out of places to site wind parks on land. So in the hope of sticking to its goal, the nation has devised two strategies. First, repowering, that is, replacing aging turbines with more efficient ones. Then, says Peter Amels, president of the German Wind Energy Association, all
5: eyes will turn north to the sea. The idea is the offshore turbines in 2030 shall produce more electricity, about 15% from the total consumption in Germany.
0: In the spring of 2004 at a wind park in the North Sea port of Emden, one of the key elements to Germany's offshore energy future was unveiled. Built by Energon, it's called the E-112. At the time, it was the largest wind turbine in the world. From its base to the tip of its rotor blades, it soars more than 600 feet into the air. The blades themselves are longer than the wingspan of a 747. The giant E-112 makes the other windmills here in this park look like play toys. This single wind machine can supply electricity for 6,000 homes. The E112 size and power are meant to impress, not just Germans but the entire world.
1: And I want to welcome His Excellency the Ethiopian Minister of Infrastructure, Dr. Kasu Lala, and from the Republic of Yemen, His Excellency the Minister for Electricity, Mr. Abdul Rahman Tarmun. Thank you all for coming to take part in this
0: ceremony. But so far, Germany's expansion of wind power to the sea is swamped in bureaucracy and is already behind by two years. Industry officials call the approval process for offshore wind parks a nitpicking nightmare that leaves investors nervous. So far, only eight of 33 proposed offshore projects have gotten the green light. Meanwhile, wind farms are springing up just off the coasts of Britain and especially Denmark, where wind turbines are the third most important part of the manufacturing economy, behind only pharmaceuticals and Legos. Even the man who designed the E-112 says the German government's goals are overly ambitious. Energon founder and owner Elvis Vauban says it will take longer than expected because not enough is known about building huge wind parks in deep waters. So we cannot jump now uh, with a big step in the
5: water and say, now we are ready. This is uh, too risky. And if we fail, uh, we damage the wind energy in Europe. So that is one thing what is not allowed, that we make this kind of mistakes. I know that the, uh, the conventional utilities uh, waiting for that, that they can say, ah, Now, once a big company makes a mistake, so the wind energy is not reliable. If something goes wrong, they blame me.
0: Time is running out for Germany. To meet its goals, the nation must reduce its greenhouse gas emissions 40% by 2020. But by then, most of its nuclear plants will be gone, and many conventional generating plants will reach the end of their lifespans leaving a huge gap in the power production this energy-hungry nation demands and leaving many Germans wondering if catching the wind can fill the void. Wind power in the United States is growing by leaps and bounds, but not without its own controversies. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In December of 1969, the music of the Rolling Stones echoed through the canyons and valleys of Altamont Pass just east of San Francisco. This was the site of the infamous concert at which a member of the Hell's Angel motorcycle gang murdered a man a symbolic end to the 1960s generation of peace and love. Today, another sound sweeps through Altamont Pass, and some say it's just as ominous.
6: (laughs) The birds out here are yelling, give me shelter, you know. The the carnage out here uh, that's going on with the birds is a lot more gruesome than what happened at Altamont.
0: Jeff Miller stands on a high ridge and points to the wind turbines here at Altamont Pass. Below us, scattered across the Diablo Range, as far as the eye can see, are nearly 7,000 turbines. Some are new and big. Most are old and small. Established in the early 1980s, Altamont is the birthplace of wind power in the United States. It's also the wind power industry's worst nightmare.
6: If you were going to pick a place to put a wind farm and try to kill as many birds of prey as you could, um, this would be the place you'd put it.
0: Jeff Miller is with the Center for Biodiversity. The group is suing the operators of Altamont Wind Park, claiming their turbines kill more than a 1,000 birds each year. Among them, protected species including the burrowing owl and the golden eagle.
6: Right where we're standing here in the Diablo Range is the highest concentration of golden eagles anywhere in the world. The issue here is, are there things that they can do that are feasible that are within their, you know, Uh, the reasonable economic costs that the wind power companies can do to reduce bird kills. Absolutely.
0: Jeff Miller says his group wants operators to reduce bird kills by retiring the most lethal of these Cuisinarts of the air, as critics like to call them. He says remaining turbines should be clustered, their rotors made more visible. Setting aside bird habitat is another option. But there's only so much operators can do. Here's the problem. Altamont Pass is a major bird migration route a factor that wasn't considered when the wind farm was constructed. On the other hand, California urgently needs clean, renewable energy, and at Altamont, there's certainly plenty of wind. At peak capacity, the turbines can produce 580 megawatts. That's enough power to meet the energy needs of nearly 190,000 homes.
6: Society's going to have to decide. I mean, at Altamont Pass... um, The issue is, you know, are we going to keep producing wind power at Altamont Pass? If the answer is yes, um, the next question is, is it acceptable to slaughter thousands of rare birds each year? You know, wind power doesn't have to kill a lot of birds. Um, Appropriately cited, um, you can can have wind power and, and very little risk to birds.
0: Altamont is considered the wind power industry's bad boy, but just a short drive away, you can find its good brother.
7: There's a a real art to uh, learning to park a car on a wind site.
0: Brent Reardon is technical manager at the High Winds Energy Center. This state-of-the-art wind park is about 30 miles north of Altamont Pass on the windy slopes of the Montezuma Hills.
7: And you can always tell the rookies driving the trucks because the Hinges are all bent out on the on their doors from parking downwind, and you know you get a forty mile an hour when you forty mile an hour wind when you open a door and you're, it's unexpected. It just rips it right out of your hand. So
0: ninety huge Danish-made Vesta turbines capture the wind here. These modern three-blade machines mounted on three hundred foot towers can produce 162 megawatts of electricity. That's enough power for 75,000 homes. So if you do the math, you would need just 228 turbines at high winds to produce the same amount of electricity as the 7,000 machines at Altamont. It was impressive for me for several reasons. Ralph Cavana directs energy policy for the Natural Resources Defense
2: Council. The machines are much more productive. You need fewer of them. They are more reliable, uh, and they're less intrusive on the landscape and obviously less of a threat to birds.
0: Less of a threat to birds because the towers are taller and their blades are above flight paths, more productive because computers direct the blades to constantly follow the wind. The blades are longer, too, and spin slower, just 16 turns a minute instead of the 72 like the old wind turbines. Ralph Cavana says he's seen the future of wind power in the United States, and its name is High Winds.
2: You shouldn't make your judgments about wind power based on obsolete technology uh, in, the, in the first generation. You should be looking at the latest generation. That's what High Winds is. I'm sure we'll do even better. But, but I found that to be a very hopeful uh, signal about where the industry was going.
0: More than 3,000 sheep graze on Ian Anderson's farm. The animals are oblivious to the turbines overhead. The Anderson family has been farming the Montezuma Hills for four generations. Among the neat rows of hay and safflower stand 12 giant turbines. Ian Anderson says leasing his land to those who harvest the wind has become a cash cow.
3: There's a minimum payment and we do receive, I think it's like $600 per machine, so in my case, there was 12 million, so I have a minimum payment of $10,000 a year, which is really helpful to my cash flow.
0: Ian Anderson believes in the promise of wind energy. So much so, he plans to buy another 1,000 acres and lease more land to wind turbine operators. If it all works out, Ian Anderson says he'll produce meat and grain for 100,000 people and provide energy for as many as 50,000 homes.
3: I'm just knowing to be a strong net exporter, not only of proteins, and uh, but also to energy. So that's a really great feeling. The big question will be, can they keep these machines running for the 30-year period? What will be the maintenance and repair costs on these? And that's an unknown. I
2: need to swipe your badge huh. right there. It'll beep and then...
0: The company that operates the turbines at the Anderson Farm in California is headquartered in a huge, ultra-modern building of glass, chrome, and high security in Juneau Beach, Florida. FLP Energy Spokesman Steve Stengel is optimistic about the long-term viability of their
2: power generators. With proper maintenance, there is, is no reason to believe that, uh, uh, that, that those turbines couldn't continue to generate electricity for... 25-plus years.
0: Now, High Winds has been cited by environmental activists as the model for how to do wind
2: parks right. What did you take into consideration when uh, citing this facility? Well, it, there was an extensive amount of, of pre-construction studies that were done that looked at everything from avian issues to, to plant life issues to cultural resources um, we looked at, at issues related to, to noise. And, and so we did our homework up front to identify any potential impacts or, or problems that there might be with the, the site um, so that we could address those prior to construction. So you did all this research. I imagine you found some
0: sticky points. Uh, what did you do then uh, to resolve those questions?
2: Well, one of the I think maybe one of the things to focus on would be issues related to uh, to birds. As as part of the, the permit that that we received for this facility, we agreed to do, for lack of a better term, avian monitoring. And what we do with that is we actually monitor any fatalities uh, that may occur uh, because of the wind farm. And over time, we we look at uh, any fatalities and we identify measures that we might be able to implement to reduce any of those fatalities.
0: Now, uh, FPL Energy uh, also operates a number of turbines at Altamont Pass in California. And uh, as we know, you and other operators there are being sued by the Center for Biological Diversity over the bird kills there, specifically the, the Golden Eagle and other raptors. What steps are you taking to lessen the impact on these birds?
2: Well, since we began operating uh, wind turbines in, in the Altamont area back in, in 1998, our company and our partners have done a, a number of things. Um, for instance, we have already taken out of service approximately 10% of the turbines that, that we operate in this region. That includes the removal of 169 turbines that we have replaced with 31 new modern turbines. And in addition to that, we have shut down and have either removed or are in the process of relocating an additional 100 turbines. In addition to that, um, the the turbine owners, uh, including FPL Energy, we have a uh, what is called an adaptive management plan. And ultimately, this plan calls for repowering. And what that is, is taking these these older turbines, these turbines that are 10, 15, 20 years old, and replacing them with newer modern-day turbines like we've talked about previously. FPL
0: operates uh, something like 6,500 wind turbines in 44 locations in 15 states. Uh, that's pretty big. In fact, I think it makes you the largest generator of wind power in the United States. Why did you decide to make this
2: big investment in wind power? First and foremost, there is no emissions with wind power. Uh, in addition to that, um, from a, a, an economic sense, uh, the cost of of wind power today is much, much more competitive than it was twenty years ago. The the technology is better. The machines are more efficient than they were twenty years ago. The other thing that is is helping the competitiveness of wind is the the high price that we're seeing of, of natural gas and fuel oil today. So those are, are really the, the primary reasons that that we think wind makes sense.
0: That's dollars and cents to a growing number of companies and investors who are throwing big bucks into wind. Federal tax credits and mandates for renewable energy in 18 states and the District of Columbia are energizing the industry. Since 1981, wind power capacity has soared from 10 to nearly 7,000 megawatts and is expected to double by the end of the decade. In the past three years alone, more than $400 million has been invested in wind. What was once the province of backyard tinkerers and back-to-earth environmentalists is now a playing field for pinstripe investors like Goldman Sachs and multinationals including Shell, Siemens, and General Electric.
3: Wind is the world's fastest-growing power resource and part of GE Energy's commitment to creative energy solutions for the future.
0: GE was showcasing wind power in this promotional video at a recent conference in Boston. And that's where I caught up with Benjamin Bell, the company's point man on offshore wind turbine sales. For GE, Ben Bell
1: says wind is a growing business. Uh, In 2004, we did a little over $1 billion globally, and uh, we anticipate it'll be close to $2 billion in 2006. So uh, I think it's it's an important emerging market, you know, essentially double-digit growth rates in the industry, and uh, GE wants to be a significant part of that. Uh, globally in the, uh, in the world is about 50 gigawatts installed. Uh, in the United States, we've got close to 7 gigawatts. And uh, right now, if you look at countries like Denmark, about 20 percent of their energy is generated by wind, whereas in the United States, it's less than 1 percent. You know, got a long ways to go, but it is growing. How much has, has tax law uh, affected your business, and, and what's the current situation? Uh, significantly. Uh, the current tax law, uh, the federal tax law, which is the production tax credit, uh, is worth about 1.8 cents per kilowatt hour. And that has had significant impact on our development. In years in the past, when the production tax credit uh, had expired, didn't exist, we had zero sales. In the years that the tax credit is in place, we sell out. So it has had significant impact. Uh, The industry isn't quite at a point where it can stand on its own. Of course, I think that's probably true of the entire energy industry. If you look at subsidies to all energy sources, uh, wind accounts for about 1% as compared to some of the other technologies that are also getting uh, regulatory support, whether it be uh, coal, oil, gas, nuclear, those those are all subsidized as well. So I think the the federal production tax credit for wind really just kind of levelizes the playing field, and um, but but has has really helped the market uh, move forward. But this runs out now at
0: uh, the end of 2005.
1: That's correct, and that's that has been a a bit of an issue for uh, for the industry, because you know with the tax credit starting and stopping, it makes it very difficult for manufacturers to ramp up produce machines and then have to you know ramp back down again when uh, sales decrease if the tax credit goes away so uh, we would very much like to see some something long-term or perhaps even a a federal renewable portfolio standard that would help uh, support this industry through its this early development time
0: and give us a short history of the wind turbine Uh,
1: what were the first ones like and how far have they come well, obviously, the first, uh, the first turbines ever developed were around 1200 B.C. Uh, in, in Persia. But since that time, uh, modern technology wind turbines really started development in the mid-'70s. And those were fairly um, simple technologies, uh, free yaw machines where the machines would steer themselves in the wind. Um, and a number of the machines produced in the, uh, in the 80s were downwind machines where the blades operate behind the tower... And the machines were also installed on lattice-type truss towers. Well, what we found out was is that uh, generally the downwind machines were noisier. And uh, sometimes utilizing those lattice towers, it, uh, it provided a roost for, for birds to, to perch on. And so we've really moved away from those technologies. We've turned the rotors upwind to help uh, reduce the noise. And we've also gone to tubular type towers where birds can't perch on the towers. And so, uh, and the machines have become much more reliable. Um, and as the computers have developed over the past 20 years, that technology has been deployed with the wind turbines, enabling us to monitor them remotely and being able to diagnose problems remotely. So the very simple machines were smaller, uh, less reliable, noisier. And those are all the things that we've been working on over the past 20 to 25 years to, to help improve them and, and lower the cost of electricity. So these are how far you've come with the machines for today. How big can these things get? It's hard to say how far the technology is going to go. It might be somewhere in the 5 to 10 megawatt range. So if I were looking at an office building, how many stories high might
0: this wind turbine be?
1: Oh, the largest machines. Well, currently the machines that we have uh, in the water, say, at our Arclo project, the rotor diameter. If you you drew a circle around the rotor, the distance across it is 104 meters, which is a little bit bigger than a football field. Um, I think that rotor diameters could approach uh, the 150-meter range, uh, which is uh, is quite large.
0: How big is big if I'm looking at one of these things? uh, How tall might it be in terms of, say, an office building?
1: Uh, Probably on the order of around... uh, 20-story building. That's big.
0: <laughs> What's the advantage for an offshore placement of a wind turbine or a wind turbine farm uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to being on land?
1: Well, one of the advantages of going offshore is generally there are better winds offshore. And those winds are also less turbulent because they just have to flow over water as opposed to going through trees and all the rest. Uh, so generally better winds. Um, and Typically, you can get large wind projects closer to load centers where the electricity has the most value. Say, on the eastern seaboard of the United States, where we're paying the highest energy rates in the country, we're able to put wind turbines close to those load centers to meet the energy demand. GE hopes to be the company
0: chosen to supply the turbines for what will be the nation's first offshore wind park. A 130-turbine facility is slated for Nantucket Sound, just off Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Proponents call it an answer to an energy-hungry society dependent on foreign oil and threatened by climate change and air pollution. Wind energy is free and unlimited, but opposition has been vociferous. Critics complain the turbines will be an eyesore, lower property values, and kill birds. Some especially don't like elements of the developers' marketing strategy.
3: It is absolutely, positively, unequivocally, unconscionable that Cape Wind is using the war in Iraq as support for its for-profit venture. No more will their proposed wind plant cut down the number of our soldiers dying in Iraq than it will wean us from our dependency on foreign oil.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
3: I shall impersonate a man. Come, enter into my imagination and see him.
0: In the play, Man of La Mancha, the gallant knight takes on the world with an idealism bordering on madness.
3: To become a knight errant and sally forth into the world righting all wrongs. His name, Don Quixote de la Mancha.
0: But Don Quixote's visions are delusional. With his lance, the noble knight charges what he believes are evil giants paying no heed to the warnings of his manservant, Sancho Panza, that he is really attacking windmills.
3: And the wild winds of fortune shall carry me onward whithersoever they blow, whithersoever they blow.
0: Today's crusaders against wind power aren't tilting at imaginary giants. They oppose real ones. Consider Hyannis, Massachusetts, on the southern coast of Cape Cod, near the Kennedy family compound. The company Cape Wind wants to build the nation's first offshore wind farm, seven miles off the coast of Hyannis on Horseneck Shoal in Nantucket Sound. The $700 million project calls for the construction of 130 turbines, each taller than the Statue of Liberty the turbines would be within eyesight of the town and popular beach communities on Nantucket Island and Martha's Vineyard. As part of the environmental review process, supporters and opponents of the project have been attending public meetings, giving voice and even song to their points of view.
7: How many windmills will it take to replace resources that leave the world unstable?
4: Despite what Cape Wind won't prevent climate change by itself, but it will offset nearly 1 million tons of carbon dioxide, making this the single most beneficial action we can take to clean our air and reduce our greenhouse gas emissions.
3: I oppose the idea of America's first offshore wind farm being placed in Nantucket Sound. My opposition is based on my opinion that this unspoiled area should not be squandered and disfigured.
1: If somebody's view
3: was disturbed...
1: I'm sorry. I really am. But the greater good is stewardship of the planet.
7: Yes, and how many particulates must fill our lungs before a clean source can be found?
1: I am not opposed to alternate energy sources, but at what expense? We have a a very unique environment in the sound and a very unique way of getting power, and I I don't know how we can marry the two.
3: The
7: answer, my friend, is blowing blowing in the the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind.
0: So far, it's been a seesaw battle over the Cape Wind project. Federal courts have ruled in favor of the plan, but in March of 2005, the Department of Interior called a draft impact statement flawed, setting the project back by as many as two years or maybe forever. On a cold, rainy early spring day along the Hyannis waterfront, I spoke with Jim Gordon, president of Cape Wind, the project developer, and Susan Dickerson, Executive Director of the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound, the leading opposition group to the wind farm. We met as fishermen unloaded their haul at the nearby dock. So I want to thank you both for coming out here on a kind of a blustery, cold day. It's a pleasure.
4: Thanks for inviting
0: us. So, Jim, let's start with you. Now, if you get permission to build your wind farm, how would it operate uh, on, well, this is a somewhat windy day today?
4: Well, uh, Steve, the the winds off of Horseshoe Shoal average about 19 miles per hour. The reason that we picked Horseshoe Shoal is that it has some of the strongest, most consistent winds. It has shallow waters and low wave heights, and we found that uh, Horseshoe Shoal was the optimal site, and the fact that it was close to the Cape and Islands, which has the fastest growing electric demand in New England. So here we're going to put a wind farm that's going to produce, on average, 75% of the Cape and Islands electricity with zero pollutant emissions, zero water consumption, and zero waste discharge. Why not go further offshore? Because, right now, the technology, Steve, doesn't allow you to build uh, offshore wind turbines in very deep waters. Um, Also, you know, the further out you go, the greater the losses are uh, on the electricity, so it's less efficient. So that we looked at a number of the successful wind farms, offshore wind farms in Europe, and what we are trying to do is build a wind farm, where the wind is, where the conditions are right so that it's technically and economically feasible to supply Massachusetts citizens with you know, lower electric costs, uh, increased energy independence, a cleaner, healthier environment and new jobs. What would these turbines look like from shore? we're actually about six miles from Horseshoe Shoal now, and if you were on the nearest public beaches and looked out on the horizon, the wind turbines on a clear day would appear about a half inch off the horizon. They would look like tiny sailing masts. So what you're looking at here, these boat masts tower over a half inch view off the horizon. Uh, Susan
0: Nickerson, you're with the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sand and. and you oppose the Cape Wind project. Why?
3: Steve, there are a number of reasons, and I, I'd like to get into them. But first, I'd, I'd like to emphasize that this is not an argument about the need for renewable energy. And I think people on all sides of the debate agree, um, without qualification, that the country needs to move in the direction of renewables. The questions that we really face here have to do with Where do you put these kind of facilities and what are the trade-offs that people are willing to live with? It turns out that Horseshoe Shoal is about the worst location on the eastern seaboard imaginable because of the existing uses out there. And the fishing boats, the one that was just here at the dock unloading scallops, very likely got that catch on Horseshoe Shoal. We have fishermen that have stood beside us for, for many months and years now and have attested to the value of the catch millions of dollars worth of fish each year, they take off of Horseshoe Shoal. It, it's not necessarily deep sea fishing, it's squid, it's scup, it's it's shellfish. And if the turbines are built out there, they won't use the area because they will not be able to nav- maneuver their boats in between the turbines. They'll be concerned about um, their gear interlocking with the cables that will be connecting each of the wind turbine generators together. That's one example of the conflicts.
0: So what are your concerns on a national level here?
3: That's a very important piece of this, because essentially national energy policy is being formulated right here in Nantucket Sound. And what happens here will have implications up and down um, the eastern seaboard, the Gulf of Mexico, and the west coast. What has happened with Cape Wind, they've exposed an enormous gaping hole in federal law, there is no federal law governing how the outer continental shelf can or cannot be used. And if this permit were to be granted to allow Cape Wind to build on public land for a private gain, it would essentially trigger a gold rush. And other coastal states that right now have no more weight than the state of Massachusetts in saying what happens in federal waters off their coasts would be affected.
0: Now, Sue Dickerson, let me ask you about. Uh some of the other environmental groups. I'm thinking of Greenpeace, uh, Conservation Law Foundation, uh, Union of Concerned Scientists have, I think it's fair to say, conditionally said that this project makes some sense to them. I think they have concerns about regulations and such. But at the end of the day, they say, look, this climate change thing is not getting any better. Um, it's a matter of trading off. There's no perfect solution. And this is better than you know having all of Cape Cod under a risen sea in however many years it's predicted. So what about the dissent among environmental groups about this?
3: Right, Stephen, that's one of the real tragedies of this whole debate, is it's pitting environmentalists against environmentalists, and it is taking two very worthy goals, one of which is development of renewable energy and pitting it against ocean resource management. To no avail, and that's why um, we think that there is a better way to do this, and that there are win-win scenarios out there. This doesn't happen to be one of them. Win-win. Win-win-win. Not not win.
0: win. Okay, not (laughs) win-win. Not win-win. Well,
3: it might be might be win-win. So, so Uh,
0: what would be a win-win here?
3: Well, I'd be the problem with this project, as we've talked about, is that it's not appropriately cited. It's not the right project in the right place, and we think that with the momentum that's developing around. Um, interest in renewables right now, that there can be a consensus approach to this project that would identify a reasonable site. Um, in terms of how, how we reach that consensus, I think that conversation needs to start with the public. A problem with this project is that it's been developer-driven. The um, Cape Wind did the computer analysis and found that this was the most lucrative site for their corporate profits and it happens to be in the middle of Nantucket Sound. We think if the public were behind um, selection of these sites, it, it would not never, Nantucket Sound would never be on the table for discussion because it is a national treasure and there are existing uses of the area.
4: Basically what you're hearing from Susan is she tells you she likes renewable energy but not just here put it somewhere else the problem is somewhere else is in someone else's view shed is in someone else's uh, recreational area and we all have to ante up in the fight against global warming you know there's an environmental justice issue here because you know it's interesting here we have the fastest growing electric demand in new england and we're talking about generating a new source of electricity with minimal impacts. And what it's not a choice between Cape Wind or nothing. It's a choice between Cape Wind on Horseshoe Shoal, or putting a coal plant in Lynn, Massachusetts, or an oil plant in Roxbury, Massachusetts, or, you know, something in a less uh, politically influential or affluent area. And renewable energy is a public purpose in Massachusetts. The legislature is mandating that we get increasing amounts of our energy from renewable energy over the ensuing years. And if we don't build projects like Cape Wind, we're not going to meet that renewable portfolio standard and mandate.
0: So um if this were a public project, if no one was going to make a dollar for private pocket, this was a done by a public agency, would it be okay to put wind turbines out in Nantucket Sound?
3: If there were, all of the environmental factors were considered, the economic factors were considered, and it came out that there was no adverse economic impact, there was no adverse environmental impact, then any site would be acceptable. Um, But the fact of the matter is that we don't have any standards, we don't have any yardsticks, and the folks from Cape Wind who like to talk about the project in terms of a Panacea that it's going to cure the asthma epidemic, that it's going to decrease global warming. That's entirely false. When you look at what's really going on here, the contribution that this project is going to make in those directions is minuscule, and the costs that are going to be incurred because of it are enormous. And the problem with the Cape Wind project is that it's so controversial, it's basically mired the development of an entire new energy industry in this country, being offshore wind energy development that ought not be mired. It needs to move ahead.
0: Well, thank you both for taking this time. Jim Gordon is the CEO of Cape Wind. Susan Nickerson is executive director of the Alliance to Protect Nantucket Sound.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Steve.
0: Catching the wind means more than putting it to work. 3,000 years ago, the Chinese built some of the earliest kites out of bamboo and silk. Of course, kites are still a thrill for kids and some adults, too, like Don McCaslin, who's taking his kite in new directions.
7: We are at Carson Beach in South Boston, and right now we are rigging kites to get ready to go buggy kiting. I've been buggy kiting since the early 1990s. Uh, Fastest I've ever gone is 42. I know many people who like to cruise in the 40 to 50 mile per hour range, but that's a bit fast for my tastes. The wind is faster than I expected, actually. They were saying a sea breeze would kick in, but I thought it would be later this afternoon. It's quite good. It's the perfect direction for long, fast reaches. And um, it's blowing probably about 10 to 15 miles per hour. So I've got to get the tire pressure up so we won't have too much resistance. Easier the vehicles roll, the faster we can go. So we're up to 40 psi and we'll move to 60. I loved doing this as the program director at Blue Hill talking about weather. There's a strong relationship between air pressure, which is of course is what's going in this tire, and wind. Wind is the result of high pressure going to low pressure. And from an educational point of view, pumping up a tire is a great way to express that. The, the, the great thing about the wind, whether it's buggy kiting, traditional kiting, sailing, is the relationship that you have with it, that feeling of the wind. It, it's the air rushing through and filling your lungs and going by your body. Right now, there's a nice gust that I can feel. It's saying, okay, time to get, get going and rig up the kite. I've got the kite overhead and it's just sitting there. I'm hovering it and I'll put my feet on the pegs for control and then I'll bring it down into what we call the power zone and it'll start pulling us along. Here we go. So we're not exactly zooming along and that's what I like for my first time out is to be moving, but be in control for safety sand hasn't dried out completely, so it's a bit soft, and that is creating a challenge for our traction. There's a pretty large amount of pull on my arm, and that is a good workout. In terms of this sport, it's just a great way to put that wonderful force of nature to exhilaration. to get the blood pumping, to use all the muscles and the brain, concentrate. I always tell people, don't spend money on an ATV, buy a kite buggy. You don't have to pay for gas, it doesn't pollute, and it's a lot more fun.
0: Wind buggy pilot Don McCaslin is program director at the Blue Hill Observatory in Milton, Massachusetts. We leave you with this thought. In the 19th century, American inventiveness, Yankee ingenuity, sparked the development of clipper ships to sail on the whispers and wails of the wind, giving our merchants the advantage of speed in world trade. In time, the sleek clippers yielded to bigger and heavier boats, powered first by coal and then by oil, ships which could move with more predictability and some might say less seamanship. But a clipper ship provisioned with fresh water and food could ride the wind almost forever and leave behind on the horizon only a graceful silhouette instead of a noxious smudge. And so that is a challenge for this age. Toxic and polluting sources of power are steadier, and kilowatt for kilowatt more powerful. But now the hope of engineers is to once again capture the free and inexhaustible supply of wind for today's human needs. So we too, if we dare can go on gracefully and forever.